Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to another week of Science and Podcasts presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. As per usual, this is Madison Dix here, one of your co-hosts, along with your other co-host. Jared Altman. That's him. Uh, like last week and the week before, and hopefully the week before that, and hopefully the week after this one, we will be taking the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature today. Uh, we're also going to lead you down some fun rabbit holes, make some fun jokes, tell you some fun facts, clear up some nonsense, and uh, generally, it'll be, a, it'll be a fun educational time. Yeah, we like um, fun. Education's yeah. fun. Education is fun. That's or at least think. it can be. Um, also, as always, a big thank you to all of you who are listening right now. Um, we are just a baby podcast, so every listen helps. It also really helps us get more listeners and have a wider reach if you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, or if you just tell a friend about it. Uh, we're trying to spread our community. Uh, if you have any feedback for us about episodes, or if you have something you'd really like us to cover, we don't bite. So feel free to reach out to us. Our email is podcast at scienceandpictures.com. That's also, actually a great idea. If you have any papers that you want us to cover that I... I will make myself be interested in them because you are a listener who's sending us a paper. So I'll read whatever you sent. Just, you know, don't be mean and pick something that you don't even want to read, but just want to make me read. Do that. No, don't. If you find a paper that's just like incredibly dense and you're like, I have no idea what this means. This is nonsense. Send it to Jared. Because he just promised to read it. Please want to actually learn them. (laughs) So you can send those terrible papers to Jared. Uh, at our email address that I just mentioned. You can also follow us on Instagram. Uh, we're on there. We're science underscore in underscore pictures. Um, you can DM us there. We're also on Facebook. Same name. So talk to us. We're you chatty. Just call, wait, you just called us science and pictures. Damn it. Well, <laughs> they do host us. So feel free to go over there uh, and then just come on back here. Science and podcast. No pictures here because it's a podcast. Although we do post pictures on the Instagram. Um, lots of memes. Lots of memes. Dank. Uh, fun facts. Dank memes. Dank fun facts. Um, too. Yeah. So there's there's always a post dedicated to each episode. So feel free to follow along there. And um, I bet you're wondering by this point, uh, what are we talking about today? And I am too because it's Jared's week, and I have no idea what his article is even about. So Jared. Yes, I relish in the surprise. Uh, So this week is going to be about uh, a really fun thing, which is uh, animal outbreaks, not disease outbreaks, and a type of human impact on wildlife that we might not always consider or expect. Okay, animal outbreaks, like swarms? Yes and no. Um, But uh, before we begin our little fun facts corner, let's just say the title is Nocturnal City Lighting Elicits a Macro-Scale Response from an Insect Outbreak Population. Interesting. Plague of locusts time. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Well, kind of. So locusts are grasshoppers, but not all grasshoppers are locusts. Now I know. <laughs> it's a good old frog toad scenario. All right. I'm super excited to talk about that. I have a feeling it's going to make me itchy. Usually when we talk about bugs, I get itchy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you learn how many bugs. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. All right. So stick around if you're interested in learning about those bugs. Um, And if you're interested in learning about some unrelated fun information, you're in the right place because we have just strolled on over to the fun facts corner. Mm -hmm. We rolled our steps so you couldn't hear us. Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, This was something I was really fascinated to to learn about, which is that the number one uh, metal, the pure metal element, I guess they might use alloys sometimes, but in cases of pure elements, the one that's best to use as like a implant or like a prosthesis or something that's going to be implanted into your body would be titanium because for some reason your body does not react at all to it it doesn't treat it as it doesn't treat it as a threat it doesn't treat it as a benefit it sort of just looks at it as your bone and puts more bone on top of it so how we figured out that this this was happening was there was this uh, scientist i can't remember his name i just read about him this morning but sorry mister um this was a little so this was like a mad scientist type, type experiment, but he actually removed a piece of uh, rabbit femurs and used a like literally like pencil thin plating of titanium, which you could shine a, a, a strong light through, and he could actually see bone marrow cells making blood and things like that. Um, but when he tried to take the plates out, he couldn't. 
because the rabbit's bones had recognized that titanium or didn't recognize it and sort of just incorporated it into their bodies. Wow. Happened again when he repeated the experiment. Um, so that makes me wonder, like, if there is life on other planets, what if I have, like, titanium bones? <laughs> we would be screwed if we ever tried to uh, do our old American way on them. Yeah, much less breakable. Much less breakable. Seems like a good thing to do. Or <laughs> an entire race of beings with bones made of spider silk. Yeah. I bet my dad is like 50% titanium by this point. Hi, dad, if you're listening. <laughs> I feel like you've told me a lot of stories of him falling from crazy heights and leaving completely unscathed. Is that, is yeah, that true? Yeah, he's an adventurer. Um, yeah, but he yeah. did not, he, he was unscathed for most of his youth. But then, you know, as he got into the 50s and 60s, he, both of his hips are metal. Uh, mm. There's some metal in, in, in his ankle, I think, too. He's... He's probably like, yeah, like 50% titanium. Jesus. So don't mess with him. It's a real bionic <laughs> human scenario. Yeah. Shout out to my dad. Okay. What is your fun fact? Interesting. Um, my fun fact this week is about seagrass. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So seagrass um, is a type of marine algae. Uh, it looks just like lawn grass and it grows and fringes like coral reefs in tropical areas. Great habitat for seahorses. <laughs> yep, great for seahorses. Um, it's also sea turtles eat it, and so do manatees. It's really important for them. But what has been discovered this year by UC Davis is that seagrass, just the presence of seagrass, actually changes the pH of the surrounding ocean water. Really? And what it does is it makes that water less acidic. Oh, that's cool. Does does yeah. it act as a buffer, or does it actually like work to? increase the acidity from from acidic to basic increase the acidity from acidic to basic so so like a buffer is like something that just makes it stay the ph it is but oh like... no, no no increases the ph wow cool yeah um which is really awesome because that means that locally it can counteract the effects of ocean acidification which is a big climate change problem that is amazing I wonder if we can find like strands of seagrass and stuff that would work in sort of climates that they maybe historically haven't been introduced to. And if it doesn't impact local wildlife, then. Before we go introducing seagrass to non-native habitats, I would say maybe we should test the local species of algae and see if they yeah, do I'm the same the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa there, MacGyver. I'm trying what to solve climate change, my guy. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's really cool. And then just to give a little explanation of ocean acidification, what that is for anyone who doesn't know, um, is as the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide, which is the main byproduct of burning fossil fuels, um, it makes the ocean more acidic. The reason that's a problem is because that acidic water dissolves calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate is what all coral skeletons are made of. It's what all seashells are made of. It's what many, many marine animals use to build their shells and build their homes. So ocean acidification um, is a big problem, but seagrass is an awesome ally to have uh, to, in fighting that problem. And what's really cool about this study is in areas where seagrass was healthy, where there were healthy, flourishing seagrass beds, um, the ocean's acidity was 30% lower. Wow. Yeah, 30%. So that basically effectively takes the acidity of the ocean at that local area down to what it was at pre-industrial levels. That's pretty amazing. Because when you think about it, like like the pH scale being being logarithmic, like two is 10, is 10 times stronger than, than, than one. 30% is, that's a lot of ions out of the water. That's crazy. Isn't that? Yeah. It's amazing. That's awesome. It's so cool. So seagrass is officially now one of our climate warriors. Yay, seagrass. Yay, seagrass. Yeah. Um, also, seagrass is something that a lot of mm, people who manage beaches will remove because they think beaches are prettier without it. Um, so if you live anywhere in the tropics and you see that happening or if you know of any public beaches, just encourage your local officials to leave that seagrass where it is. It's super important for the animals. Uh, and now it's also helping us fight climate change. So there, that's my fun fact. Double whammy. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, that's not at all related to bugs. You know what doesn't eat seagrass, but eats land grass. Maybe. Right, I don't actually know their, I probably should have looked up their specific diet. Grasshoppers. 
grasshoppers. They hop on grass. Do they eat it? We will not find out. <laughs> no, don't fact check us on this specific instance. Um, but yeah, so that was a, it was a very long titled paper. So, so I'm not going to read it uh, entirely again. It was about grasshoppers and outbreaks and macro scale responses, which we'll learn what that means uh, to human induced things. But this paper was lead authored by I hate how it's so hard to dig up info about some scientists, uh, but I finally did it about this person, Dr. Elsk Tielens, um, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Tielens is an insect ecologist who, among other things, seeks to understand ecological patterns on large scales. The role of dispersal on community ecology, dispersal means, you know, spreading out from, from, from one place all around, um, and enhancing standard insect sampling by incorporating large data sources like radar and remote sensing. Okay. Indeed. So to, to say the least, this article was a pretty fascinating read. But before we jump in, let's take a quick little trip over to our jargon corner and flesh out some key terms. All right, here we go. All right. Are you there? I'm here. Okay, it's dark in here. Um, first up is aeroecology. Have you ever heard that one? Aero, aeroecology. Now, is that spelled like bow and arrow, arrow ecology? Uh, like, like, uh, like, like aerodynamics. A-E-R-O ecology. Oh, yes. Okay. So that's the study of the interaction between living and non-living things in the air? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, it's, Wait. Yeah. Um, aeroecology <laughs> is, uh, put it simply, it's the ecology of the aerial domain, uh, domain, which is, which is what you just said. Um, yeah, specifically, is the interaction between living and non-living things in an environment. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, I'm going to do a little bit more uh, terminology here. It's basically the interactions between living and non-living things inside the aerosphere, which is all the sections. Aerosphere. Yes. Have you ever heard that before? I'm guessing that's like an inch above the ground to uh, up where there's no more breathing. Well, you have to be able to breathe because the aerosphere is basically all the parts of the atmosphere that 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 support life. Hey, there we go. That's yeah. Yeah. I'm like an inch above the ground to the area where you can't breathe anymore. Yeah, like several <laughs> miles up is still the aerosphere, but I wouldn't be able to breathe up there anyway. Probably not. Because I'm a someone guy. can. Someone can. Looking at you, Michael not Phelps. Not a person. <laughs> oh, I, I said not a person. Not even Michael Phelps. Not a person. Probably not. I'm thinking like some bug. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you, some bug. Uh, next up on our jargon corner is uh, one we've definitely heard before: anthropogenic. Anthropogenic, caused by humans as a species. Exactly. Uh, this can be anything from habitat modification to the changes in global climate that we are currently experiencing. Mm-hmm. You heard it here the hundredth time, folks. Climate change <laughs> is anthropogenic. Oh, fake laugh, hiding real pain. Um, next up is. Phototaxis. Phototaxis. Okay, photo is light, and taxis has something to do with respiration and struggle. Kinda. Um, so this, I, is, this is not, don't take what I'm saying here as actual definitions. This is me reaching into my brain space. So okay. phototaxis <laughs> would be, would that be like light absorption? It's the movement of an organism to or away from light. Taxis. Oh, taxis means moving. Yeah. So you'd probably be uh, at the unnamed aquarium you work at familiar with with with, with the term thigmotaxis or a thigmotactic animal. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so thigmotaxis is basically how much an animal likes being very snug in its uh, enclosed space. So so like lobsters like are a, a grouper. Exactly. Groupers are positively thigmotactic because they prefer an enclosed environment. Lobsters are positively thigmotactic because they like uh you know in, in enclosed environments. Uh, if you have a weighted blanket, you might be positively what's the word? Thigmotactic. Thigmotactic. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of fun words. But yes, phototaxis is the movement to or away from light. Uh, of course, uh, in that same logic. The word logic. taxi makes so much more sense now. What's up? The word taxi makes so much more sense now. Oh my God. Taxi. Takes you from place to place. Easy way to remember that Latin root. Yeah. I'm also just making that connection. Interesting. Yeah. Whole world of vocabulary just opened up. Um, but yes, so uh, final term is... Da, 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 da. Outbreak, but not outbreak in the pathological terms. Uh, pathology in the terms of ecology. No, Out I'm sorry. I said pathology as if it was the term. Outbreak. Ah, okay, outbreak, but not 
Get your mind out of the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. Um, no pastrami suddenly in there are many when previously there were few. Yes. That is what I, there are a lot of definitions and this is uh, one of those scientific things where it kind of depends on who's writing the paper. But from what I understand, it's basically when the population of something explodes out of a known norm. So like it's known that things like some populations of rabbits and wolves go through like a boom bust cycle. Like they, mm -hmm. they, they explode and then they run out of resources. So they go back to lower numbers. That's not an outbreak because we can see that happening as a general cycle. I see. An outbreak okay. is basically like, oh my God, why are there so many grasshoppers? So it has to be outside the norm. Yes. So like cicadas that suddenly appear every 13 years, that's not an outbreak because it's cyclical and predictable. I believe so. If someone wants to correct me on that, please do so. But I think that is the right way of saying it. All right. Yeah. Um, and with that, we have uh, got out of the jargon corner. Much brighter in the room we are in. But now that we've immersed ourselves in the jargon, it's time to dive in. So, <laughs> yeah. So, Madison, have you ever heard of Trimerotropus pallidipennis, the pallid-winged grasshopper? The no. first two words I said were Latin. And that's why that's why there was a pause. <laughs> it took me a second to compute. But no, I have not heard of this hopper. Makes sense because they're native to the other side of the U.S. Um, this stout little insect is native to lower parts of Canada and the deserts of... Uh, what side of the country are on? Western. Right. Yes. Yes. So it's Western US and also that, that part of Mexico. Thank you. I'm so tired. Wait, Mexico or Canada? All the way up, all the way down. Both. Yeah. So the West Coast of North America. Yes. That's how I should have said it. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, yeah. So I am a little bit surprised that I... I'm sure I would have read about it. I just don't remember reading about it. But um, uh, these guys are a pretty common sight throughout their entire range. But in the summer of 2019, a grasshopper outbreak of downright biblical proportions converged on the city of Las Vegas. <laughs> so um, I told you to Google a uh, search term uh, before we, we, we started this. Uh, listeners, you can as well. Pallid winged grasshopper, Las Vegas, 2019. So just yeah. look through those you, images. You instructed me to type that into the search bar and then not look at the results. Yeah. So tell me what you see now. All right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, for one, they're really cute. They are they've cute. Got, they've got a really cool camo print mm -hmm. going on. Um, they also look like an actual blizzard. Don't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, there are pictures of cars buried in these things uh -huh. <laughs> there sure oh are my God. like they're like up to your ankles walking down the street mm -hmm. that's i don't like that <laughs> <laughs> so um let me uh oh my god wait you you are the one who led me to the google and here was where the google has led me las vegas pizzeria serves grasshopper pizza i'm oh. clicking on it during the insect invasion. Oh my god. Oh, so resourceful. How sustainable. I love it. Oh my gosh. Awesome. What's the name of the restaurant? Hold on. It's called Evil Pie. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go there. Oh, I love it. They called the pizza the Canyon Hopper and said it's only for the bravest daredevils. Oh, I would eat it. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you want to hear what else is on it? I sure do. Okay. The pizza pie consists of chorizo goat cheese, caramelized onions, arugula, and lime and garlic roasted grasshoppers. That sounds delicious. I'd have to have it without the chorizo, but absolutely yes. Same. Yeah, because I don't eat meat. Uh, well, I do eat insects, though. Oh, yeah. I don't eat... <laughs> you know how some people say they don't eat anything with a face? Yeah. Apparently, I only eat something if I can eat the whole face and the body at once. <laughs> <laughs> so you're praying, man, this is what you're saying. Maybe. Hey, there you go. But yeah, that sounds really good. Have you ever eaten a grasshopper before? I have never, well, not yet. I've never been in, in a situation where I was offered it, but I absolutely would if given the chance. And anytime I go to a restaurant and I see it, I will eat it. But There's uh, a really cool restaurant in New York City called The Black Ant. Uh, and they do bug brunches where like everything has some sort of insect in it. Uh, I went there for my 24th birthday and it was awesome. I had grasshopper tacos and um popcorn shrimp crickets um and scorpion shrimp cocktail Ooh. yeah scorpion shrimp. um 
and bugs are a super sustainable form of protein. But that is not what we're talking about right now. <laughs> it's tangentially related. I like it. <laughs> That's so, what happens when you send me to Google, Jared. Hey, there you go. Um, so there was, of course, as you can see on, on Google, a lot of press about this. It actually circulated around the globe, not, not, not even mentioning Las Vegas. Um, and it also spawned a good deal of speculation as to why the grasshoppers would show up en masse night after night uh, to an urban area that offers very little food in the way of food for an herbivore. Yeah, um, it's a desert full of alcohol. <laughs> it's a desert full of alcohol and gambling. Um, so, Madison, uh, do you have any ideas why they all showed up? Um... They all just went through a divorce? (laughs) Well, maybe some of them were married to a grasshopper named Alan, uh, because the prime suspect was a phenomenon called Alan, which is an acronym uh, that stands for Artificial Light at Night. (laughs) That was a roller coaster. (laughs) I legit thought for a moment there, I thought like this was all going to be the fault of one guy named Alan. I was like, what did he do? Fred them and released them all. What did he do to the grasshoppers to make them this angry? <laughs> so, okay, that makes sense. Because, like, you know, bugs, they like light. A lot of them do, yes. Um, you know Las Vegas is full of neon signs that are on all night. It's, like, so bright. Yeah, and I'm glad you, you uh, brought this up because I actually found inside this paper that uh, Las Vegas, in terms of the U.S., possibly North America, possibly the world, is the brightest city per, like, square mile, I think. Okay, so, like, it's really lit. It's a beacon. In all of the ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that does make sense to me. Like, there's a lot of lights, so the grasshoppers come for the lights. But, like, this this only just happened. And Las Vegas has been, like, pumping up the lights for decades. Exactly. A little bit more on that later. But okay. that's a really interesting it thought. Sense. That's fine. <laughs> yes. Uh, so artificial light at night, Alan. Uh, I love that it's Alan. I love that. I can't with that. <laughs> Artificial light at night is a uniquely anthropogenic occurrence that continues to increase by up to 20% its previous value every year. So every year, every year, 20%. Yep. Globally. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize. Me neither, man. Wow. Yeah. Lights are getting brighter. 20%. I wouldn't have believed it myself if it wasn't a quote straight out of this paper. If that happened in my apartment, it would be just filled with light bulbs. Oh, Jack would lose his mind, man. Jack would lose his mind. Jack's a cat. Anyway. <laughs> Not a moth. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm tired. Um, so, yes, 20% every year. Um, and through consequences like behavioral changes, uh, including things like wonky migrations, it's been shown time and time again that Alan can... <sighs> Alan can be highly disruptive to wildlife. I'm sorry for laughing. Uh, that God damn it, Alan! <laughs> With so many animals known to use light as a behavioral cue, it's easy to see how Alan has become such a potential issue. Uh, artificial light at night can and often does attract animals to ecological sinks. Now, Madison, you've heard of a carbon sink, right? Mm-hmm. So what's an ecological sink? So a carbon sink is something that absorbs carbon. Yes. So an ecological sink <laughs> is something that absorbs the interaction between living and non-living things in an environment? Sort of. So ecological sinks are more similar to, like, attention sinks. They're poor-quality habitats that something about them draws animals to them. Um, they're oh, basically yeah. habitats that, if they weren't connected to other habitats, would not be able to support any form of life. That is a phenomenon I did not know existed. So there are places that's, like, you shouldn't... You shouldn't live there, yeah. animal. The animals are like, I want to go to there. Mm-hmm. That's so, like, Animal Disney World. <laughs> yeah, basically any like metropolitan area is Animal Disney World. <laughs> Times Square. I can I can think of a lot of things that people are like, we got to go to that place, and mm-hmm. it's a terrible place. Yeah, Times Square, Disney World. Um, where else? The Midwest. If there are any leopards <laughs> listening, please do not come to cities for your own safety. Yes. Um, sorry to those of you who live in the wet Midwest. I'm from there. Um, okay. And Las Vegas is one of those for grasshoppers? Yep. Pretty much any metropolitan area, if you're not like a pigeon that somehow get more than enough food, most cities are ecological sinks to most animals. Interesting. And do we have any idea what qualities bring animals to these places when they're not getting the resources they need? So it can be light, 
it could be like I guess there's a lot of qualities. Yeah. Um it could be something like neighboring construction or something just sort of like driving them out in, in into places they shouldn't be. They could be following another animal in because they're possibly a predator chasing another animal. There's a million thing thing things it could be, but unfortunately it is happening. Okay. That's an interesting new term. I will I will be using that. Yeah. Alan and Ecological Six. Damn it, Alan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as we were talking about, uh, Las Vegas just so happens to be the Allen capital of the U.S. It's got the brightest oh lights. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have a friend named Alan, and now I'm just picturing so many of him in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, Does he spell his name with uh, one L? No, it's A-L-L-Y-N, so it's not him. It's Almost. not his fault. Almost. Not talking to you, Alan. What? Talking to you. Alan. <laughs> One letter off, Alan. You're lucky. Um, <laughs> so all of these lights uh, are mostly at night going to manifest in the air as sky glow, which is the pervasive light pollution that blocks city dwellers, including myself, uh, Angry Face, from getting a true look at the night sky. I'm not joking. Yeah. As a city person, I damn near cried when I was able to see like the big old dust clouds up in space because I went to the country for, for the first time. It was it was magical. Oh, yeah, you grew up in the city. I did. So, like, you didn't grow up looking at the stars, did you? Nope, nope, nope. I saw some stars. Maybe, like, five. I saw the li- I saw the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. That was basically it. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up, I mean, like, northern Michigan has pretty good visibility when it comes to, to the sky. Um, pretty low light pollution, because it's pretty rural up there. So, I grew up with, you know, the stars were bright, and I loved looking for the different constellations, looking for all the seven sisters and Pleiades, and then I moved to New York City, and I was so happy on the rare nights when I could see the belt of Orion. <laughs> yeah, man. I would love to live in a place where you can literally see at night because the stars are shining down. But, um, yeah, anyway. But Las Vegas is not one of those places because of Alan. Because of Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our authors didn't want to leave it just up, up to, to speculation. Uh, they went out to investigate whether Alan was truly responsible for drawing the outbreak of grasshoppers into Las Vegas. Because let's remember, nothing about Las Vegas caused the outbreak. We don't. We have no idea what caused the outbreak. What's weird is that they all converged on Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, so the typical methods for studying grasshopper outbreaks, because... That's a sentence I just said. Um, involved experimental setups and small-scale monitoring. But for a search area the size of the Las Vegas Strip, these methods fall quite short of the mark. Um, the immense scale of this study demanded the use of advanced technology that could hope to match it. Can you guess what was used? Advanced technology to measure all of the grasshoppers storming Las Vegas. Um, big net? I don't know. <laughs> big virtual net. Weather radar. Weather radar. You can see them on the weather radar? Yup. <gasps> yes, you could. Oh my god! They're like a storm! Oh yeah. Um, and this is really cool too because uh, weather radar, this is nowhere near the first time it's it's been used for aero e- e- ecology studies. It's been used, well, it's been used mostly to study birds because birds are much easier to detect than a little tiny insect. Birds can be pretty small, but most of the time they're like bigger than a hand. Unfortunately. Yeah. What? No, that's great when they're, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so birds are easier to track and, and they're generally larger, so that's why they're mostly used for that. Um, but there have been past radar studies of locusts, uh, which are a type of grasshopper, that have proven that these difficulties can be worked around. Our authors adapted their methods, those locust studies, um, and applied them to 75 days of remote sensing data gathered from Las Vegas. These guys were there for two and a half months. The I was about to say, wait a minute, how many days now? Two and a half months. Two and a half months of grasshoppers in Las Vegas. Yup. <laughs> what did that, are you going to tell me like what that did to, to tourism there? I, I should have looked more into that aspect, but people were mostly freaked out. Some people went there just to see them, but mostly it was like, oh my God, I'm terrified. Yeah. Which, you know. like I mean, when there's swarms of locusts, your first thought it's not, I hope to love this insect. So I understand, you know, maybe, yeah, I'm sorry anyone who's afraid of bugs because of what happened, but, you know, they were, it's not their fault they came. Um, not their fault that they came, but I feel like a lot of people would just, you. I mean, you hear swarm of locusts, you think apocalypse. Exactly. Yeah. And these guys do look just like locusts. And also it was in 2019 and then the pandemic happened. So... <laughs> Predictor. 
so I am I am in no way suggesting that locusts are linked to the pandemic. We'll see how I edit that to sound like. Um, All right. <laughs> so uh, grasshoppers can't actually be tracked when they're feeding on the ground during during the day, which makes sense. They're on the ground, but they can be picked up basically as soon as they take off, which in the case of pallid winged grasshoppers is right around dusk. They're nocturnal flyers and they feed during the day, which makes me wonder when do they sleep, but, and this is actually- They might not. Yeah. A lot of animals with like really short lives- don't sleep. Yeah, and even some with like kind of long ones, like like um, gr- green anacondas. There have been very long term studies on on what they do from like day to night, and they're such complete ambush predators that they just eat when they're hungry. They don't seem to have like a day or night schedule. Albatrosses sleep one half of their brain at a time. Ah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Don't you wish you could do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> well then. <laughs> I like sleep. Yeah, that's fair. The full sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so these nighttime flying habits would actually be perfect for studying the <laughs> the attractive effects of Alan. Um, oh, God. <laughs> which have shown little to no effect on flying animals during the day. Why would they? It's light at night. Um, Alan, he's beautiful, but don't trust him. <laughs> he's alluring. He's seductive. But if you're a moth, stay away. Um, so back to the study. <laughs> The authors predicted uh, that the location of flights at dusk when they first took off would be more tied to feeding grounds with lots of uh, healthy vegetation. Nighttime flights, on the other hand, were predicted to very strongly over time zero in on that artificial light, which would signal the dispersal or the migration of those grasshoppers from their feeding places to urban Las Vegas. Um, Mm. It was also predicted that they would sort of follow... These grasshoppers don't have like a sort of like a hive mind type thing, but it was predicted that the more grasshoppers were present, the more that the other individual's behavior would be influenced by just the sheer number of them doing this one thing. Yeah, grasshoppers swarm, right? Some species do. Did you know that plants swarm too? Huh? Plants swarm. That's one thing I learned from lessons from plants. Wait, Um, time out, explain. So plants, they did some experiments. I don't remember with what type of plant, Um, but they were growing in soil that was homogenous. So the soil had the same quality, same nutrients throughout the area. Mm-hmm. And the first plant they planted just happened to grow its roots in one direction. And then the plants they planted after that all grew their roots in that same direction. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I read about a very similar study that proved that corn has a rudimentary form of hearing because they put a speaker in the soil and all the corn grew towards the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> that's super cool. Right? Wow. I don't know why I just thought of that, but you're welcome. I love that. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's swarming, going the same place with the group. Yes. And they tend to do that. They do. So when all was said and analyzed, our authors found that their predictions were right on the money. Um, over the course of those 75 summer days, the grasshoppers showed a quite consistent pattern of daily movement, or shall I say nightly movement. When they took off at dusk, their co- their locations were strongly correlated with areas with ample greenery to snack on. From that point onward, grasshoppers moved skyward and away from natural habitats towards the sky glow of Las Vegas. Um, this was all picked up by a weather radar. Individuals were recorded two and a half miles up in the air and reached peak abundance a little before midnight. Um, this broad-scale pattern of leaving adequate habitat for the allure of artificial night glow was observed through nearly the entire study period. Which, um, so I'm really interested about this because I'm wondering, before there was anthropogenic light, what light source were locusts moving towards at night? In my mind, it could only be the moon and stars. That's the only... I, I just don't know anything to say besides that. It's a good question. Yeah, I mean... What's making them do it? We don't know. We still don't know why moths are declining in Europe because they're too attracted to lights, but... um. Aww. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a lot on that later, actually. But, uh, ooh, gonna get sad. Um, ready, no. <laughs> ready for the estimated numbers? Sure, numbers. All right. Yes. So in terms of density and density-dependent patterns... Okay, I guess. Like, how many locusts are in the jar? Like, like oh, how yeah. many jelly beans in the jar? How many locusts in in Las Vegas? I know they're not locusts. Mm-hmm. They're grasshoppers. Yeah, go ahead. But locusts in Las Vegas rhymes. I can tell you're excited, um, so go ahead. Okay. All right. I'm going to guess estimated numbers were around 
One trillion. See, now the real number is going to seem disappointing. <laughs> no, trillion, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have shot for trillion. Trillion is such a high number. It really is. Trillion is a thousand billion. Holy crap. Right? Yeah, that's a lot. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, give us your money. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so not quite one trillion, but in, the numbers are still pretty staggering. Oh, and also the behavior of the collective very likely did influence the behavior of the individuals, which, you know, only, only makes sense considering how many there were. Worms! But, um, yeah. All, oh, also to that end, uh, the more grasshoppers that took to the air overall, the stronger the correlation was between the nighttime flights and urban areas. At the same time, the correlation between grasshoppers and suitable habitat dropped. So that can really only mean one thing. Grasshoppers on the move, moving to Las Vegas. Grasshoppers on the move. Um, so grasshoppers- How many though? <laughs> We're almost there. Um, so grasshopper density peaked on the night of July 27th. And uh, how many there were, uh, there's about an estimated 45.8 million grasshoppers taking to the air. Wow. And that's just in one night, not over the two month period. Yep, that's one night. That's the most grasshoppers oh, wow. that showed up. Uh, the permanent, Can you say the number one more time? Uh, 45.8 million. 45.8 million. Mm-hmm. So the population of Las Vegas is about like 2.5 billion. That's 70, that's 17.5 grasshoppers for every Vegas resident in 2019. And once again, this just shows you like that's a lot of grasshoppers. Jeff Bezos has $1 trillion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give us money. No, that's incredible. That's a huge amount of grasshoppers. It is. Um, but, Not- so they also gave a weight estimate, which was kind of fun. Um, there were about 30.2 metric tons of grasshoppers flying around, which is the combined weight of a large humpback whale. That seems light to me. <laughs> grasshoppers are really light, huh? They are. There was a, oh, there were so many though. There was. Yeah. Like, literally biblical proportions, which was amazing. But, like, a, a humpback whale's weight of grasshoppers covers much more area than a humpback whale. Oh, it sure does. <laughs> yeah. Imagine a humpback whale exploded over Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Humpback whales are also, like, it's amazing. Marine mammals, for their size, are so heavy. Like, they're so dense. All that blubber, man. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway. Away from grasshoppers. <laughs> tons of them. So many. Oh, there's, there, there's a lot. Um, the problem is there's a lot because now it's for the sad part. Um, so Uh-oh. as amazing as this was to see or would have been to see, I, I wasn't there to see it. The implications of the data are not so great. Um, so mm-hmm. our authors have actually shown for the first time that artificial light at night can attract and alter the behavior of huge numbers of nocturnal insects at the macro scale. The macro scale is, they didn't actually define it in the paper, which I thought was kind of weird, but it's like, it basically means the big picture. Exactly. It's 45.8 yeah. million grasshoppers. It's <laughs> a lot. Exactly. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so inferts drawn to artificial light sources can become quote unquote trapped, which basically means that they're hyper fixated on that light and they basically render themselves incapable of foraging, mating, or using that time to move to a more suitable habitat before daybreak. Um, I love lamp. I love lamp. There's a reason for those memes. Um, yeah, they're just like hypnotized by it, right? They are. We still don't really understand why, but they are. It's like a two-year-old with an iPad. They just can't get enough. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, the meme in in particular is most likely mentioning uh, light-attracted moths or phototactic moths in, in the UK, because there's been a lot of long-term studies on those moths, and they actually decline further in areas with stronger artificial light at night, mm. which is... Again, not so great an implication on these grasshoppers. Um, and they go They're on destroyed to... by the thing that they love the most. Exactly. And they go on to state that because Alan is so understudied, they need to take a further look at Alan. Um, Alan could have I'm sorry, this isn't funny. Alan Someone could... needs to look into Alan. Somebody's He's way too attractive. Alan. He's causing problems. Yeah, and could have an underappreciated influence on the decline of insects around the globe. Not to bring up the whole He's insect bad, apocalypse thing, way. but you know, that is happening. Not really not yet on apocalyptic levels, but you know, if we don't do something, it's going to get there. Yeah. I mean, like uh, in particular, you hear a lot about the decline of our pollinators. Those are mostly insects. Um, And insects, though tiny and to some creepy have extremely important roles in the ecosystems they live in. They're every, every living thing has a job. Exactly. And insects do a lot of important stuff. Soil wouldn't be soil without insects taking the digestive plant matter and making it into things for the plants and fungi to eat. Um, Yeah. But yeah. There's a reason we're able to grow food. Like, they're important. Mm -hmm. Insects, bats, and other pollinators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, now, uh, to undampen it a little bit, there is a, sil a, a silver lining to this, um, which is now that we know that this kind of thing is happening, we can study it further and work towards solutions to prevent any negative impacts humans are currently having on insects. In fact, some cities are already looking into less attractive lights um, that would allow us to see, still, like the use of red lights, which would make it kind of like we're in Amsterdam, but, you know, I'm, we're, I'm willing, yeah, exactly. I'm willing to make that sacrifice for our, for our insects. Everyone um, looks better in red light. Have you ever been to Barry's boot camp? I haven't. Why would maybe I should go yeah. take a selfie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I worked there. Uh, no, I didn't. This is a podcast. Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they put on red lights in the room where you work out and everyone looks so hot. So that like, takes... imagine that, but it's the whole city. Everyone like looks so music much better. Video. Yeah. I like this idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as we continue to uh, further explore the issue, more solutions are definitely going to pop up um, for anything from insects to sea turtles to anything that uses natural light as a navigator. We should really be, you know, helping them. Um, yeah. In the meantime, though, there is a lot that the average person can do for our local bucks because a lot of the find things... Find Alan, kill him. <laughs> find Alan and kill him. No, don't do that. Do not endorse murder. And Alan is not a person. He's artificial light. At night. Yes, you'd have to break every light in Vegas, which would definitely take more than a night. Um, take a real light. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, what you can do, though, is a lot. Um, you can do things like uh, doing away with, this is, for some reason, it's radical to say, but do away with your grass lawn. Just get rid of it. Yes. Do something like a moss lawn, which uses so much less water, is so much less upkeep, and you don't have to mow it because moss doesn't grow high. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, put some uh, natural plants in there, kind of dispersed between the moss. Help our local pollinators. Yes, also, that helps bring those bugs back. In case you're wondering how your grass connects to the light problem, it doesn't, but it helps the animals that are suffering get better. Yeah. Gives them safe places. Exactly. Lose their resilience. Less of a compound effect. Yeah. Oh, and uh, more to that end, stay the hell away from pesticides. Don't use them. Don't use pesticides. Don't do it. Nope. Um. um also, I mean... The main users of pesticides aren't individuals. While that is true, I do know that a lot of people don't know that they're causing harm by by using them. So, you know, there is sure. something that the individual person can do to not contribute to the problem. Oh, I was just going to say another thing that you can do is uh, try to, when you can, when you can find it and when you can afford it, choose organic produce. Yeah. Because organic produce doesn't use pesticides. That's what I was going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't saying do whatever you want with pesticides. It was just like, if you don't have a lawn, like for me, I don't own, I don't own any green space. I live in a box <laughs> on top of a, another box on top of another box. They all have lots of people in them. Um, so I would never use a pesticide, but I do eat a lot of fruits. I try to try to pick the organic ones. Another thing to do to avoid pesticides is um, supporting community supported agriculture so like you could start or join a community garden you could join a csa which is where the local farm you give them a little bit of money and they send you what they grow every week um there's lots of like cheaper alternatives um to just buying the more expensive organic produce in your local grocery store um, Absolutely. that can help can you local as well yeah, it, it can also be something as simple as kind of finding out which kinds of mycorrhizal those those root fungi are good for the plants that you have, and even just kind of putting those in soil, because in a lot of cases, you wouldn't actually need the pesticides because the fungi can keep the plants healthy. Yeah, if you are a gardener, um, there are natural alternatives to pesticides, and I know the word natural is loaded, but what Jared was talking about, mycorrhizal fungi, are the actual organisms that plants themselves recruit to help themselves grow. And plants really yeah. know what they're doing. So if we listen to them and use those things, give them what they actually want to use instead of pesticides, it's just as effective and it doesn't hurt anyone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I in no way meant to assert that like you cannot do things that are out of your control because how are we going to stop Monsanto from using pesticides in, in the short term? We're not, but we can bully them over time. Um, Who's Monsanto? I only know that as the Little Nas X song. Oh my God. Monsanto is a... I don't even think I don't even think they're a corporation at this point. They're like a conglomerate that they patented Roundup, and anytime Roundup ready seeds go into a local farm, just because they blew into the wind, Monsanto has legal rights to sue those farms, and in fact does all the time. What? It's it's a rabbit hole. Um, we can wow. So wait, they make the they make the pesticide, and people use it, 
Not quite. Then, they make, they own, they have a patent on the genetic strain of, I think it's soy, that is resistant to Roundup. That doesn't die as a result of it. Oh. So when those seeds blow into other farms, technically Monsanto, they have a whole team of lawyers, so they sue. And oftentimes win. Holes. Yeah. They're worse than Alan. I'm surprised you haven't seen Food, Inc. That's a great uh, documentary. You know, I did see Food, Inc., but I just, I saw it in high school, and I... That part slipped my mind. Monsanto, man. They're not good. Monsanto. Bad. Okay. Their website is, it's like, it's like what hell looks like from the outside, which is like such an inviting place. But when you go there and look further, you're like, oh my God, this is evil. Oh, it's like, um, it's a, it's a uh, eco sink. No. What was it? Ecosystem sink. Ecological sink. Ecolo thank you. <laughs> looks good from the outside. Then you get there and you're like, what? This is not what I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Cut Monsanto like, off and they right. would die. So let's do it. Um, I, This brought to mind another thing. Did you know that Bill Gates owns like more than a third of all of the farms in America? Huh? <laughs> yeah. But he's the, he's the, he's the, he's the, he's the Dill guy. Yeah. So. <laughs> Microsoft. Um, Wait, no. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, <laughs> Still. But yeah, hold on. Let me, let me get the exact. Bill Gates? How many farms does bill gates bill own the microsoft um, guy yeah twenty-seven thousand <laughs> acres oh uh, that's no that's even more wait why bill hold up i don't know what to do with the half of information you've given me well bill gates owns two hundred and forty-two thousand acres of farmland making him the country's top agricultural landholder <laughs> so he's the big what is he doing on those farms? Is this a good thing or a... It's definitely a bad thing, but what is he well, doing he's on the like, farms? He's like a, the landlord of the farms, basically. Um, which is... Doesn't sound real good. There's, I guess there's a lot of speculation about like why he does this and, and what he's doing with it. Um, yeah. Also, Bill Gates also has more dollars than there were grasshoppers in Las Vegas. Jeez. <laughs> we're going to have to eat Bill Gates. I mean, listen. We haven't confirmed foul play yet, so 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 I I guess we'll hold off. But like, this is sketchy. This I'm stinks. not gonna say I'm gonna eat him yet, but I don't trust him. <laughs> I enjoy the free textbooks that one course I ever went to in college actually used. Uh, they tried to do a good thing with that, which was nice. But anyway, yeah, this is weird. I want to read more about this. Yeah, I'll I'll post. I'll post. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I should provide a link to okay. some Monsanto hate mail, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Monsanto, Bill, and Alan. The big three bad boys of Grasshopper. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably put it onto this. Um, I did have one final thing to say, which is mm -hmm. uh, one little silver lining, uh, which is that people are actually starting to accept the concept that insects need help, that things are happening to them at really, really high levels. And that's a lot of energy that we could turn into positive change for insects everywhere um, if we have to, the drive to do that. Um, so uh, before we force ourselves to experience what life, uh, what life would be without them. What life would be without them. What life would be without insect? What be? Insects no without life. We be. No be, no life. <laughs> No bee, no life is pretty good. It's true though. No bees, no life. No bees, no life. <laughs> They're really important. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So if anyone's listening is still like, yeah, I don't like bugs, so I don't care. It's Listen, not really a luxury that we have anymore. You have to like bugs because You don't have to like them, but you do have to support them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is not like a Donald Trump like kind of thing. Like they're not telling any lies. They're not doing any bad stuff. Bugs never spread misinformation. Well, bugs aren't racist. Madison, Madison mimicry. Okay, so bugs spread a little bit of misinformation. <laughs> only to each other. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the misinformation that bugs spread is like, woohoo, I'm an owl. Like, yeah. that's, that's as insidious as it gets. <laughs> They're the ones that get to. Yeah. We live in a society where we don't have to do that. No. So, yeah. It's like the old, innocence in all of this. Yeah. Protect them. It's like the old adage says, don't ever put me in a situation. <laughs> don't ever put me in a situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
well, this was super interesting. Yeah. I still have a lot more questions, like how did Las Vegas deal with this? Um, what causes swarms of locusts to begin with? Like, where did they all come from? I have to imagine it because I don't, I couldn't find any info on why this actually happened. Was some sort of ecological do domino effect. Like there was an overabundance possibly of a common plant that they eat and it just allowed them to uh, breed and spread out of control. Interesting. I shouldn't say you know how, how grasshoppers, What's up? How do grasshoppers breed? What do you mean? How, how do they make more grasshoppers? Oh, good question. Um, I know that the feeder crickets I use have ovipositors, um, which means that they use their little butt straw to lay eggs in substrate or like soil and stuff. Okay, so it's external fertilization? Internal fertilization, external egg laying. Okay. Like a chicken. Yeah. How many eggs? It, ooh, I really can't answer that. It definitely depends on the species. I'm gonna Google how many eggs does a pallid winged grasshopper eat? No. <laughs> Google pallid winged grasshopper clutch size. Lay. Pallid wing. The female will deposit up to 12 egg masses with 100 eggs in each egg mass. Wow. So that's 12,000 eggs? Or is that 1,200 eggs? 1,200. 1,200 eggs per female. Jeez. Wow. The eggs overwinter and the nymphs emerge in the spring. Well, it's fun. I huh. keep a uh, type of feeder roach called a dubia roach, which do this really fun thing. They're internal fertilizers, but <laughs> I don't know why this evolved, but they protrude the egg sac out of their body for just a little bit, and then they reabsorb it, and then they give birth to live young. Look what I got going on here. Don't touch it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly like that. I don't get it. It's the funniest thing to me. I love that. Yeah. Wow. All right. Bugs are super interesting. Mm -hmm. This was great. Um, still going to eat the rich, also going to eat bugs, but only farmed bugs. Yeah. Don't eat wild bugs. Do not eat wild bugs. Also, Do not eat wild bugs. Uh, still eat warning to anybody who, who keeps reptiles. Cause I just thought of this. So I feel like I, I should say it. Uh, don't get like pre-killed feeders or anything from Fluker's farms because someone posted their customer service interaction with them on Twitter. And Fluker's basically admitted that they cultivate their insects by harvesting them. Oh, we don't want that. Yeah. Um, and the person sent the complaint because her grasshopper exploded with horsehair worm parasites. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, that's a fun little thing. All right. So if you have a little non-human friend that eats bugs, make sure you're responsibly sourcing those bugs from farms, not from wild collection. Mm -hmm. And if you yourself would like to try to eat some bugs, go to a restaurant that does it. Don't try to just, like, find a bug and eat it yourself because you don't know where that bug's been. Yeah. It's been dirty places. Don't put that in your mouth. That bug could have anything. Yeah. Parasites. And I think that's where we end it. So don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> if you hated this episode, let us know. If you loved it, let us know. If you have a really awful, hard-to-read article for Jared, send it to us. Oh, okay. Why did I agree to that? I Podcast still haven't agreed to that, actually. Is our email. Science in podcast with underscores on Instagram. Science in podcast on Facebook. Um, goodbye. Eat bugs.